Hey, this is Dr. Eric, and I just want to let you know about my gut healing bundle for those with thyroid and autoimmune thyroid conditions. This includes SMT Probio, which is a probiotic with 18 well-researched strains, Enzymes Plus, which not only includes digestive enzymes, but betaine, HCL, and ox bile, and SMT GI Restore, which is a stevia-free formulation that has multiple nutrients and herbs that have been proven to help support the healing of the gut. To learn more about this, you can visit guthealingbundle.com. Thank you for joining me on the Save My Thyroid podcast, where I help people save their thyroid and regain their health. My name is Dr. Eric Osansky, and if you have hyperthyroidism, including Graves' disease and toxic multinodule goiter, then you will especially benefit from these episodes. However, if you have Hashimoto's thyroiditis, you also need to save your thyroid, and therefore you will also find many of the episodes to be valuable, including this one where I interviewed Dr. Emily Kybird as you chatted about staying fit and increasing muscle mass. And while Dr. Emily helps people with Hashimoto's, a lot of the information will also benefit those with hyperthyroidism and Graves' disease. As usual, make sure you listen to the post-episode chat after the outro music, as I'll expand on waiting until adrenals are healthy before exercising too intensely, being productive in between exercise sets, getting enough protein, and having proper form when exercising. And you can access the show notes by visiting saymythower.com forward slash 110. Anyway, here's my interview with Dr. Emily. Welcome to the Save My Thyroid podcast, hosted by Dr. Eric Osansky. To stay up to date on the latest thyroid health-related topics, visit SaveMyThyroid.com. The following discussion is for educational purposes only and is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. Please do not apply any of this information without first speaking with your doctor. Now let's head to the show. All right. Well, hello, everyone. I am very excited to chat with today's guest, who is Dr. Emily Kybert, as we are going to be talking about keeping fit and muscle mass. This is the first time I think I'm talking to anybody on the podcast really about in depth about exercise and building muscle mass and what to do, what not to do. And so let me give Dr. Emily's background here as Dr. Emily Kybert is a chiropractor, mama to Elvis and Brooklyn, and the creator of Thyroid Strong, which is the only doctor-designed exercise program for women with Hashimoto's to learn how to work out without the burnout. And she's been featured in Vogue, Women's Health, Self Magazine, as well as Fortune for her expertise in strength training, injury prevention, and ergonomics. Also has a wonderful podcast called Thyroid Storm. And thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Emily. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about your background. Obviously, I gave a very brief background just now with your bio, but you know, how did you make the transition? Or were you always helping people with muscle mass and exercise? Or is it something where just over the last few years that you made that transition? Yeah, so I've been a chiropractor since 2007. And you know, coming out of school, it's like adjust, maybe do some soft tissue work. And it gets very boring, in my opinion, very quickly when you're kind of doing the same thing every day. And, you know, a certain number of people get better, but then a certain number of people come back and they're like, well, I still like have some pain here. And obviously as a practitioner, you want to help as many people as you can. And the journey evolved. A lot of it was doing yoga teacher training and using yoga therapy in the practice. Then it evolved into doing strength training. So knowing where there's too much mobility, too much movement, 
and where there's not enough movement. Because I think, you know, when people assume, oh, there's a tight muscle or, you know, something feels stuck, we should release, right? It's always like get a massage or stretch or release. And oftentimes that can be a compensation for something else that's not stabilizing. And so you have to work on that other place that's stabilizing that compensation. And sometimes that tight place will just kind of let go. So the practice slowly evolved into that. And as with anyone's practice, it should be an evolution. I think as you learn more, you know, I'm always curious and hungry for knowledge. And in 2016, I had my first kiddo Elvis. And for the first year I was just exhausted and all those symptoms that you think are quote unquote normal. Everyone's like, yeah, you're a new mom. I was like, this is not good. <laughs> 18 months postpartum. So right, he's walking around year and a half. I was exhausted. My hair was falling out. The outer third of my eyebrow was missing. Couldn't lose about probably 25 pounds of baby weight. And every time I ate, my tongue would swell and I had a little bit of eczema on my hand. And I went through kind of the primary care endocrinologist, actually went to two different functional medicine docs until I met my current functional medicine doc, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. And she's like, how come no one has tested more than TSH? You have an autoimmune condition. You have the presence of thyroid antibodies, you know, The official diagnosis would be Hashimoto's, but it's good that we caught it early because if you catch it early and you get kind of figure out what is the trigger to that inflammation, you could go into remission. And that is exactly what happened. So went on this journey of changing how I was eating, you know, let go of gluten, basically anything I was eating, I was reacting to. I was having a histamine (laughs) intolerance kind of like a mast cell activation syndrome. I could smell someone's clothes. I knew that they washed them in Tide, like, you know, 50 feet away. It was really, especially in New York City, where you can smell everything. There's lots of odors. It was very intense. And part of the journey was finding out that I had mold in my apartment, which can cause a histamine response and can cause that kind of overactive immune system and can trigger Hashimoto's as well. So had water damage, had mold, had stachybotrys, in fact, along with aspergillus. I did a lot of developing country travel in my 20s. So I had about three different parasites, like hookworm, roundworm, pinworms. And, you know, just kind of went on that journey of starting to decrease that inflammatory load. I was overtraining, which was kind of the birth of thyroid strong, right? So I was trying to lose the baby weight and I was going to spinning classes. Sometimes I do a double spinning class. So two 45 minutes back to back. So 90 minutes of spinning about four days a week, or I do a spin class and I'd walk across the street and I would do basically a high intensity interval training class, Barry's bootcamp. And the weight would not come off and it was very frustrating. And so part of this journey, not only was addressing those underlying root causes, changing how I was eating, but also changing that lifestyle factor of really dialing back my exercise and getting really smart about it. And through my own journey, I was then seeing more autoimmune women coming into the clinic. I was co-treating them with different functional medicine docs in the area in New York City, where they were addressing the functional medicine, kind of like the internal stuff. And, you know, all the women had joint pain, muscle aches, and low muscle tone. And so the docs were like, hey, I need you to get them out of pain, and I need you to put some muscle on them. And so probably in 2017, that was this evolution of seeing more autoimmune 
women from that lens, from that angle of how are they moving, right? Because normally when you see a doctor and you know, you're sitting down across from them, they're reading your labs or giving you a game plan or a supplement protocol, and we'll see you in dead in a month. Well, I'm actually like getting them moving, checking, okay, what's moving too much? What's not moving enough? How can they pick up things in certain ways, checking the tone of their muscle, checking their deep tendon reflexes, which can change when you're hypothyroid and looking at them through that angle, which I'm going to guess a lot of women who have an autoimmune condition are not, you know, assessed in that way. And a lot of doctors don't do that because I don't think there's a lot of doctors that are functional medicine or endocrine, you know, endocrinologists and do rehab and strength training. So that was kind of the birth of thyroid strong and seeing more women in person struggling. And from the clinical practice, there were certain things that I picked up that I was like, oh, this is like a consistent finding, which is really interesting that no one's talking about. So yeah, it was really an evolution starting in 2015. Well, yeah, that's some journey. And obviously every person's journey is different. So my background, I dealt with also, I'm a chiropractor by trade and had dealt with Graves disease. So I didn't deal with the molds, which it sounded like you had some serious mold issues and then the parasites. But one thing we have in common is I was also overtraining. I was overtraining prior to my Graves disease diagnosis and should have known better as both of us being practitioners. But again, it's not like they teach that in chiropractic school about training and rehab. I mean, well, rehab, I guess, to some extent. But again, what you're teaching, definitely they don't teach in school, in chiropractic school and medical school. So it's great that you're helping others. And it's great that you've been in remission, you know, with your Hashimoto's condition. And so I don't know where you want to start. Do you want to start with like what you actually recommend as far as there's different types of exercise, there's cardio, there's resistance training, there's high intensity interval training. Do you recommend one of those or a combination or maybe something different that I just mentioned? Yeah. So I think because fatigue is such a big component of Hashimoto's, I want my exercise to be efficient and effective. And you know, I used to train for triathlons and marathons, you know, long, long states of cardio. And I find that, you know, there's also, as you know, an adrenal component to Hashimoto's. And so if I'm thinking, I want my exercise to be efficient, I want it to be effective. And I know being hypothyroid, it is harder to keep muscle on the bone. And muscle is essential to help with the turnover of thyroid hormones from the inactive form T4 to the active form T3, right? So it happens in certain places, the gut, the liver, and then the muscle tissue. And knowing that, and I know that women want to lose weight because that's like the two biggest struggles are I'm exhausted, but I'm also overweight and I want to lose weight. So if I want my exercise to kind of check those boxes, I like resistance training, feeding the muscle tissue. I like women to be walking. You know, a lot of women are like, this cultural mindset of, oh, I need to lose weight. I'm going to put on my running shoes and go for a run, which I think is just like, it's not the right message to be sending. I think when we put more muscle on the bone, the more muscle we have, the more calories we burn at rest. So if we want to lose weight, but we don't want to totally like cause a hashi flare up or be bedridden for three days, because there's definitely women who are so fatigued, they can't get out of bed. I like resistance training. I like it on the heavier side. So you can hit that fatigue, lower reps, 
and then long rest breaks in between sets. I like kettlebells because they're very forgiving when you're first learning form and they're portable. You can travel with them. We can talk about why kettlebells are so great, but that's what I prefer. I would prefer that over high intensity interval training, especially if you know that adrenal component is there. Like if women are burning the candle at both ends in other aspects of their life. And, you know, as you start to put on muscle, you'll have more energy. You'll be changing your body composition. The number on the scale might be the same, but you'll notice your clothes are fitting better. And then the number on the scale might be the same because, you know, muscle weighs more than fat. And I think this focus on like, let's feed our muscle tissue if we want to lose weight versus, oh, I need to lose the fat. Because when we talk about, oh, I want to lose weight, I want to lose fat, it comes from this place of like deprivation, right? It's like, put yourself in a caloric deficit, try to like run it out versus if you focus on feeding the muscle tissue, your body composition will change. Your clothes will fit better. You'll be burning more calories at rest. You'll have more energy. Muscle is a very expensive organ. It requires more feeding of it, ideally protein. and it's almost like changing your body from a place of elevation. Like, Oh, I'm going to feed it. I'm going to feed my muscle versus this place of deprivation, which is like, Oh, I got to like starve myself to lose fat. So that's how I like to get women to work out. And if they want to run, like if it fills their soul, like if they've been a runner when they were younger, you still have to strength train, right? Even if someone loves to walk, I've had women, they're like, Oh, I can walk like 30 minutes. And then at 30 minutes, my back starts to hurt probably because they need some strength somewhere. Maybe it's more core strength, more glute strength. Maybe it's, you know, they need strength in their quads and their hamstrings. So if you get that woman to resistance train three times a week, you know, for someone who's really deconditioned, I'll work them up to three times a week, three to four times a week. Then they go for the walk and they can go for an hour and they don't feel pain. So I don't feel like there's any downside to having more muscle on the body. And the way you're going to get there is through picking up something heavy, putting it down and doing it again, as well as making sure you're getting, you know, your optimal protein every day. Yeah. So, I mean, we have both people with Hashimoto's as well as Graves with Sensitis. And, you know, I agree for both. I mean, resistance training for those with Hashimoto's and then with Graves, it's very common to lose muscle mass. Now, of course, with Graves, hyperthyroidism, a lot of people are losing weight. But some people with hyperthyroidism actually gain weight. Sometimes it is the opposite problem. But either way, I like what you said that you might not see the changes on the scale. You know, not that they won't. Some people will. Some people will yeah, see changes on the sure. scale. But if not, some might get discouraged. But it's important you mention that because, again, the muscle mass, you know, muscle is denser than fat. And so just to set those expectations. So one thing you recommend in between sets to take longer breaks. So are we talking like two minutes or five minutes in between sets typically? Yeah. So I think if you go to a kind of like boutique or aerobics class, right, there's not really a break until the end of class, or maybe there's like a 30 second break. I like women to do 60 seconds, 90 seconds. If someone's more seasoned and they're lifting really heavy up to two to five minutes, It really depends on where they're at in their workout journey, but I would say, you know, 60 seconds minimum. And then during that time, I like to have women basically toning their vagus nerve. So if you think about 
with Hashimoto's especially, stress is a big piece of the puzzle. And stress can come in the form of emotional stress, physical stress, environmental stress, like mold and parasites. But I think there's this cultural message of don't stress, de-stress, you know, like avoid the stress and stress is inevitable. So it's like, how can you kind of lean into that stress to make you more resilient? And one of the ways to do that is when you're in a stress state, the quicker you drop into that calm, parasympathetic, like everything's okay, the quicker you can get out of the stress state and back to the parasympathetic state, usually the more resilient I find people to be kind of high performing. And so if you think about you pick up a weight, it's like elevating your heart rate, it's elevating your breath rate, it's getting you out of breath. And then you take your rest break and you have this moment to kind of drop back down into like the parasympathetic. And you could do that. So I have women inside Thyroid Strong hum, sing, put their tongue on the roof of their mouth and try and extend their exhale as long as possible, ideally twice as long as their inhale. So it's almost like you're training your nervous system, you know, because a lot of people train their nervous system seated or in a meditative state where you're actually doing it while after you're putting a stressor on your body. So I like to do that during the rest breaks. It also makes the time go by a little faster if you're not used to taking 60, 90, two minute break. You know, people are like, doo, doo, doo. you get them to sing and you get them to hum and you get them to extend their exhale twice as long as their inhale. It goes by a little quicker. So that's also why I like long rest breaks. And I find when women do that, they don't get into that like, oh my God, I'm so tired after my workout. I need a nap. I think that's very common. Women are like, oh my God, I worked out. I'm like totally tanked out. I can't function the rest of the day. And our workout shouldn't take away from our day. Our workout should enhance the rest of our day. So it shouldn't totally like take us down bedridden for a nap. It should energize us, which probably fuel properly afterwards and enhance our day. And I find that when you take a little bit of a longer rest break and you're doing these things that can help you drop back into the parasympathetic state that women feel more energized and not so tanked out the rest of the day. Yeah, that's very cool. I'm going to try that during my next workout too, because you're right. A lot of people, even if they are taking, let's say a minute or 90 second break or a couple of minutes, depending on, again, like you said, the intensity, but still most people are not doing anything. They're just kind of hanging out. And especially if going to the gym, you see like, I was about to say (laughs) half the people are on their cell phone. Just so exactly. So that is a great advice. And you know, thank you for sharing that. How about frequency of resistance exercise? Do you recommend like four times a week or less or more? Yeah. So I find that women with Hashimoto's are kind of on the spectrum. There's like the CrossFitter burning the candle at both ends, overtraining six days a week. So that person I'd probably drop down to four times a week, depending on their fatigue and their symptoms, maybe three. If you do three, they're kind of like itching for another day. So probably four days a week. And then The other end of the spectrum is a woman who is more deconditioned. She maybe walks 2000 steps a day, maybe has never touched a weight, kind of scared of weights. So that person needs to be worked up to three days a week. I do encourage walking as a form of exercise. And I know a lot of women love to walk. You know, it's not resistance training or walking. It's doing both, which, you know, if someone is very deconditioned can be a lot. So 
Yeah, those are the two ends of the spectrum. So I think kind of a sweet spot would be three days a week. If someone needs a little bit more, four days a week. You know, even my friends that are doing bulking hypertrophy programs where they're eating 2,500 calories a day, 250 carbs a day, they work out four times a week. They're not doing six days a week. I think it's too much, especially for the Hashi population where you have to consider inflammatory load. You have to consider fatigue and adrenal health when you are designing a program. So do you work out then four days a week on average? Yeah. And I try to walk every day, bike my kids to school and, you know, depending on what I'm working on. Yeah. I would say three to four days a week. And when do you prefer working out or is there a best time to work out like first thing in the morning or in the afternoon? Yeah. So I think if someone is trying to kind of reset their circadian rhythm, right? So maybe they have low cortisol in the morning and they're dragging, it would probably be better to try and work out in the morning to kind of spike your cortisol when it should be highest, you know, maybe out in the sun or getting sun in your eyes would be great. I'm just by like nature, kind of a midday worker outer. So around lunchtime, if I work out after two o'clock and, you know, when I lived in New York city, I would get done with work at seven and I'd go to like a spin class at 7.45 and then be wired until like 2 a.m. and wonder why. <laughs> but if I work out after 2 p.m., maybe 3, I get like a second wind at 10 when I should be going down. And so, yeah, I try to push it earlier in the day, midday. Hey, this is Dr. Eric. And if you're looking to do everything you can to save your thyroid gland, in addition to listening to this podcast, there are a few different ways we can help you. First of all, I've written a book on hyperthyroidism called Natural Treatment Solutions for Hyperthyroidism and Graves' Disease, as well as a book called Hashimoto's Triggers, which of course is on Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And you can find both of these on Amazon, as well as other websites where books are sold. Second, you could also join my Graves' Disease and Hashimoto's Healing Community by visiting autoimmunethyroidgroup.com. And finally, if you want to get personal help from me, you could visit the website workwithdrerick.com. Just to let you know, I only see a limited number of new patients each month, and I do require anyone interested to complete a brief online application before work with me. And now back to the show. Okay. And I definitely want to talk to you about the kettlebells, but before we get into that, how about protein intake? So what do you recommend as far as protein intake? Yeah. So I think a lot of women are under eating protein. I think protein should be prioritized. For people who are bedridden, you know, the more muscle that they have on their bones, the more likely they are to recover from their injury or their sickness. And so for protein, I like to shoot for one gram per pound of ideal body weight. So if my ideal body weight is 150, I'm going to have 150 grams of protein per day. I'm going to dose it equal. So sometimes I think culturally we kind of dose dinner as a higher protein intake, but ideally you would want it more even amount. So like 50 grams for breakfast, you know, if my goal is 150, 50 grams for breakfast, lunch, dinner, I try to eat my protein first and then I take in fiber. So vegetables and I have a history of being like, kind of like a grazer. Like I kind of eat and then I get like go 
Like I don't like sit and eat and I really try to make myself sit and eat. There's like a dose dependency, like a time frame. So I try to get my protein within 25 minutes versus kind of eating a little bit, going and doing something and eating a little bit. There's a dose dependency to trigger mTOR to then trigger muscle protein synthesis. And really we're eating protein for the amino acid profile. Protein is very satiating. It's almost impossible to overeat protein. You'll probably throw up if you did. And so it's great, especially for the women who want to lose weight because it's very hard to overeat protein. And so I think it's important to definitely get protein in the morning after we've been in that fasted state and sleeping. And I think most women are under eating protein. Sometimes I have women just change their protein intake, not even pick up a kettlebell yet. (laughs) And they're like, oh my God, I have so much energy. I don't even know what to do with myself. And all I did was try and hit 30 grams minimum per meal because that triggers muscle protein synthesis, right? You get your three to five grams of leucine there. So yeah, that's what I try and shoot for. And that's really from the work of Donna Lehman, who is a researcher. He's retired now, but you know, a researcher in that field, especially around leucine. Now, I'm sure some are listening to this saying, there's no way I could get one gram of protein per one gram of body weight. Ideal body weight, ideal body weight. Ideal body weight. Yeah. Animal protein, I would imagine, is your primary source then of protein? or That is my primary source, just so that there's like a complete amino acid profile. When I was first diagnosed with Hashimoto's and I was reacting to everything, you know, I had like H. pylori, I had stomach acid. I couldn't really eat that much. So I was actually doing a pea protein shake kind of as like a medical grade food because that was all I could tolerate while I healed my gut and worked through those um, triggers that I mentioned earlier. But yeah, I mean, I prefer animal protein. I know for some women don't eat a lot of animal protein and you're like, oh, five eggs for breakfast. They feel like they're like choking them down and they're full, like (laughs) up to their chin. So you might have to work up to that, right? I would say animal protein is my main source. Would you recommend, like, if someone initially is struggling to get it through foods, like, is it okay if someone wanted to supplement with protein powders or take even amino acid supplements or both of those options? Yeah, I think that's fine. I have a protein powder that's made out of beef, Equip, which I like. I don't think there's any down, like, the research is kind of mixed. There's some research out there that shows the amount of protein you actually absorb from that plant-based protein is less than what is, you know, stated on the package that like animal protein is a more absorbable form of as a protein source. It's the newer research shows they're equally absorbable. So I wouldn't be like pounding soy protein. I'll just say that (laughs) if you have a thyroid condition, but if you wanted to mix it up, so like five eggs is 30 grams of protein for breakfast. Most women can't eat five eggs. So I'll be like, well, why don't you try two eggs and then like two sausage links, like chicken sausage, or maybe you have two eggs and then you have a protein shake. So it doesn't feel like you're stuffing yourself full of food. (laughs) Yeah, no, definitely makes sense. So let's talk a little bit about kettlebells. So why do you like kettlebells? What are some ways you recommend for people to use them? And then do you just recommend kettlebells for resistance training or... I'm sure people have other things listening to this. You'd be okay with them using weights and bands. But I guess you personally, do you just stick with the kettlebells or do you have other 
things that you incorporate into the routine for resistance training? Yeah. I mean, as you go heavier in weight, you're going to need heavier weight, right? So like if I deadlift one and a half times my body weight, like it's picking up two 100 pound kettlebells is like kind of awkward because they're so bulky. You know, then I would use a hex bar or a barbell, but you have to learn the form with a barbell, right? It's not very forgiving, especially as you're like trying to get around your shins as you're lowering down. So kettlebells, you know, if you take the deadlift, right, which is basically a hinge movement where you're kind of sitting your hips back, standing upright, squeezing your butt. If you think about a barbell, you have to navigate the barbell around your shins. It's kind of awkward as you're lowering it down. You could use dumbbells, but they kind of like, where do they go? You have to kind of shave your shins with them. Kettlebells, you can literally get right below your center, right below, you know, your crotch basically. And you can sit your hips back, pick them up and put them right below your center, which is a barbell is like a little bit in front of you. So now it's away from your center. So little nuances like that, like if you started someone barbell deadlifting, it's a little intimidating and it's awkward. Whereas kettlebells, it's much more forgiving when you're first learning form. Your form, yes, ideally would be good and almost perfect. So you don't injure yourself. But if you're kind of like, eh, like maybe your hips are too low or they're too high, you're not going to injure yourself. Whereas like a barbell, like your form has to be dialed in like 98% perfect, in my opinion. I also like kettlebells because there is this offset weight. So let's say you're going to press overhead, right? You're going to push weight overhead. If you have a dumbbell, the weight is on either side of your hand, right? It's kind of centered. With a kettlebell, the bell sits on the back of your wrist. And so when you're holding the kettlebell kind of in front of your chest and what we call the racked position, you have to kind of curl your wrist into neutral, right? You don't want your wrist to be kind of cocked back. You want it neutral. And so when you do that, you're actually, like if someone did this, like if they put their hand out and made a fist and kind of put their hand back and you push down on it with the other hand, and then you make a straight fist and you push, you can literally feel the shoulder stabilizing muscles. So like your latissimus, your serratus, activate. So because there is this offset weight, where the bell is on the back of your wrist, it forces you to create these points of stabilization in your body that doesn't happen necessarily with a dumbbell. The other thing I love about kettlebells is you can use them ballistically. So, you know, in Thyroid Strong, we do, you know, seven moves that I think are kind of essential for people to do for life, to be good at life, which are a hinge, a squat, some sort of push movement, a pull a lunge, a carry, like you're carrying your groceries, and then some sort of control of rotation of your core. And we work up to, over the six weeks, kettlebell swings. And, you know, we do drills. So you're not just like swinging a bell (laughs) all over the place. And you can get your heart rate up, right? So it's a tool to get you breathy, get your heart rate up without going for a run without doing more of like a high intensity interval training where you're doing like 15 to 30 seconds of like all out work where you're getting your heart rate up to like 80 to 85% of your maximum heart rate and then doing 15 to 30 seconds of rest, right? That's kind of more of a high intensity interval training. You could do 10 kettlebell swings and get your heart rate up. You know, the other tools that could be used as ballistic moves 
would be a barbell, but now you're getting form. Like if you cleaned a barbell up to your chest, well, now you really have to get your form dialed in. So I like kettlebells because they have that ballistic potential to help you get your heart rate up. So it sounds like those who go through your thyroid strong program will become experts when it comes to using kettlebells. And I guess when it comes to form, I might be wrong, but I think you're saying it's not important with kettlebells, but it's just maybe not as important as using other bars and dumbbells, but then also it's maybe easier to keep proper form with kettlebells. Is that what you're also saying? Or Yeah, it's just more forgiving when you're first learning. It's like, because the weight can be under your center versus in front of your center with like a barbell. And, you know, if you do a heavy carry, like you have two bells and they're down towards your sides and you're packing your shoulders. You know, if you did that with a dumbbell, they're kind of like hitting your legs and it's kind of awkward. Because the kettlebells are not, they're not, you can just kind of hold them down to your sides and they kind of glide past your legs. It's just more forgiving when you're first learning form. There can be a little more, you know, margin of error because that's what happens when you learn form, right? You do it kind of not that great first couple of times. You know, and part of thyroid strong is there's like really good cues from working with patients in person to get person, someone into like the perfect deadlift setup versus, you know, you might work with a trainer and they're like, all right, sit your hips back, grab the bell, stand up. Well, it's like, well, where do my feet go? Where do my knees go? Like, are my hips too low? Are they too high? Right? So when thyroid strong, there's cues like exact to get someone basically in the perfect starting place. So yeah, there's just more margin for error when you're first learning with kettlebells than maybe some of the other tools out there. Okay. Now that makes sense. And I don't know if you mentioned this earlier, and obviously you spoke about having longer breaks in between sets and doing the vagus nerve exercises, stimulating the parasympathetic nervous system. Do you have someone do like 12 sets or 10 sets or just until they're fatigued or like what does it vary depending on the person? Yeah. So I typically have women do, if they're more new, do three sets, someone who's more conditioned, four sets. And then in terms of reps, which are like Mm -hmm. the number of times you pull a weight and then a set is... Did I say reps? I meant repetitions. I don't know if I said that, but I'm sorry. How many repetitions? I guess you could say how many sets and repetitions, but I meant to say repetitions specifically. Yeah. So for someone who is scared of picking up a weight is more deconditioned. I'm going to start them at like, I might even start them at three reps just to get them to like grease the groove of the movement, like kind of create that muscle memory. But, you know, once they're starting to get into a groove of working out six to eight reps, I very rarely go over 10 just because I'm trying to keep in factor like I don't want to fatigue someone, especially if they haven't dealt with those other inflammatory loads in their body. So that's when I say it's like, well, you build muscle when you hit fatigue and fatigue is, we can talk about four ways. Fatigue when you're working out is by the last couple reps on a scale zero to 10, you're hitting like a seven or eight in like perceived exertion. That's one way. That doesn't resonate with me really well. So the other way to think about it is by the last couple reps, you ask yourself, how many more could I do? How many more do I have in the tank? If you have two more in the tank, that's a good place to be. If you're like, I could do five more, 10 more, then you need to pick up a heavier weight. The third way to talk about it is on the last couple reps, the concentric phase, like where you're shortening the muscle, fatigue is when you, on the concentric phase, can't get full range of motion. 
that would be another way of considering failure. And that's where muscle hypertrophy happens. That's where muscle maintenance, muscle growth happens. And then the fourth way that I talk about that a lot of people don't talk about is do you lose form and default into this extension compression compensation? And so this is from learning and studying from the Prague School in the Czech Republic, this technique called dynamic neuromuscular stabilization. And they basically looked at how babies learn their movement patterns and how they hit their milestones. And so, you know, for example, the first six months of life, maybe three months, it's literally just trying to like bring their knees up to 90 and create rigidity and embracing their core. Four and a half months, they roll at six months they're sitting, right? There's these milestones that babies hit. And so a baby who is not developing properly, which is about 30% of babies will default into this extension, right? And if people don't know what extension is like an arching in their back to compress their spine, to execute a movement versus using their intra abdominal pressure. And so babies who don't develop well, will do that. Like they're kind of flare their ribs and crank on their back and you can see their paraspinals all activated. Well, we do that as adults when we hit fatigue. So if you've ever seen a CrossFitter do a muscle up where they're like holding rings and they push through and they're pushing up, when a CrossFitter hits fatigue, they will literally crank into extension in their low back and their neck to try and execute the movement versus using their core and using good intra-abdominal pressure. So same thing when you fatigue in any other move you will basically default into this extension compression compensation, basically favor extension in the low back and the neck. So you'll see this in a deadlift. People stand up, they'll be like pulling, 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 and they'll like basically over push through their hips and like crank on their back. You'll see it in a plank, just someone simply holding a plank. Once someone starts to fatigue, their back will start to arch and they'll lift their chin to crank on their extensors. So that's another way to know that you're hitting fatigue. But in terms of reps and sets, you want to hit about eight to 10 sets per muscle group per week. It's a good place to be if you want to put your muscle on or maintain your muscle. Yeah. And that makes sense. And like you said, if it's towards end of each repetition, and especially if it's like the last set and still kind of easy, that's an indication to go higher and increase the weight. And I guess also another question with that, do you recommend then for people in general, women and men to like keep on increasing the weight? Or is there like, I don't know, do you recommend like a wellness weight where they've reached this weight and then they stay at that weight or pretty much do they have to keep on, again, just increasing the amount they lift? So you want a program that has progressive overload, right? There's like progression of the weight over time. There are other ways to progress without necessarily picking up heavier weight. And it's basically more time under tension. So an example would be you do a squat and you hang out at the bottom of the squat for an extra second or two or an extra breath and you stand up, right? You didn't necessarily increase the weight, but you increased your time under the load, which will then increase the volume. So you could do like one and a half reps. So you like go down in a squat, you come up halfway, you go back down in the hole and you stand up. It's another way to increase the load without necessarily picking up a heavier weight. 
So I do that in thyroid strong because it's a home-based program. I don't want women buying like 20 kettlebells because <laughs> they're expensive. And they're like, I don't want to clutter my living room. Em. So I'll be like, okay, so you have like a 12 kilo, a 14 kilo and a 16 kilo. That's what we have to work with. So we're going to, instead of you investing in a heavier bell, we're going to do these techniques to keep more time under tension without necessarily having to pick up a heavier load. But yes, you want progressive overload. A great way to do it is to just slow down the eccentric phase of any move. And the eccentric phase is, you know, if you're doing a bicep curl, this is the concentric. This is the eccentric. Your muscle is lengthening under the load versus concentric is it's shortening. So any move where it eccentric phase, you just make that like three to four seconds. So you stand up with a deadlift as you're lowering back down, you take three to four seconds to lower. It's a great way to not necessarily have to pick up a heavier weight. All right. So yeah, thanks for answering that. So yeah, women listening don't have to keep on purchasing kettlebells. That's one reason why I was asking that and you answered a question. So thanks for that. And then also, just can you talk a little bit, one of the things that prior to the interview, we were talking about some of the things, potential topics, and you mentioned hypermobility. So talk about hypermobility and autoimmunity. Yeah. So, you know, I haven't found any research on this. I go to PubMed every week and kind of type something in and try and see if there's any research on it. But what I noticed with women with autoimmune conditions that I was treating in the clinic was you know, I'm looking at them through a lens of movement. So what's moving too much? What's not moving enough? And I will check a Baton score, which is a physical therapy orthopedic test, looking for hypermobility. And the places you look are the knees, the elbows, the thumbs, pushing down and touching the soft part of the forearm, pinky bending back beyond 90. And then the last point is someone standing straight, knee straight, bend forward, touch the floor, they can palm the floor kind of like a yogi, but you know, they probably created biomechanical hypermobility. And if those points come up in a Baton score, there is a sign of tissue laxity, joint hypermobility. And I was finding this in the women with autoimmune conditions. It wasn't a hundred percent of the time. It was probably like 80 to 90% of the time, but it was significant enough to be like, Hmm. Okay. And you know, all these women are coming in with joint pain and muscle aches. And they all want to get adjusted and they want a massage. And I was like, listen, no amount of massage is going to help create that stability and rein in that joint that is kind of hanging out in the ligaments. We need you to resistance train, get stability and strength in the right places. You know, a lot of women will feel like tight in their mid back. We can do some mobility drills and adjust you there, but you need ultimately strength. Like no amount of stretching or yoga is going to rein in the integrity of the joints. And so I was noticing this in a lot of women with Hashimoto's. Other people I've talked to, like Jessica Drummond, who is on the East Coast and is a physical therapist, she's like, oh yeah, I noticed a lot of women with long haul COVID having like this intermittent joint hypermobility or just joint hypermobility post-COVID. And then some of the trainers that I talked to who also do resistance training or do programming for women with Hashimoto's. They're like, oh yeah, I noticed a lot of the Hashi women have these like joints that are just like (laughs) totally hypermobile. So it was a clinical observation, but it was something that really guided 
how I cued and how I programmed inside Thyroid Strong. Very interesting. Do you talk about that more in the program in Thyroid Strong? Or? Yeah. So like, let's say you're standing up from a deadlift, right? You're at the bottom and you stand up knee straight. Well, you know, most trainers will be like, grab the weight, stand up. Well, someone who's hypermobile and their knees hyperextend don't know where their center is. So if you just ask that person to stand up and they jam into their knees, they're going to get joint pain, probably on top of their hypothyroid <laughs> condition causing joint pain anyway. So, you know, I teach women to foot dial, which helps bring tension from the feet up the legs and professional lifters do this. But like, if you stand with your feet, kind of like toes turned out ever so slight. And as you're standing up, you squeeze your heels together, but you don't move your feet. You'll literally like draw tension, like your whole leg will activate your quads, your glutes, and you can stand up with straight knees without, you know, jamming them into hyperextension. So that's one example in the plank. Like if your elbows are straight, their elbows will hyperextend. You can get them to push through their index knuckle, which comes from how babies crawl. So babies who crawl and develop properly will ground their index knuckle to the ground. Babies who don't crawl and develop properly will actually hang out on the piezoform side of their hand and they'll kind of crawl like this versus actually pushing through. So in a plank, you can get someone to push through their index knuckle and turn their elbow crease towards their thumb and get them out of hyperextension. And that helps activate your serratus, helps with shoulder stability, basically. Whereas if you did a plank where you're kind of hanging out on the outside of your hands and you're hyperextending your elbows, you're not going to feel your shoulders into protraction, into the shoulder blade wings kind of going down and wide across the ribs. So those are like cues that are very specific from, you know, my background of studying how babies move and we've, you know, learned their milestones as well as working with women and trying to get them into good form, you know, like just simply being like, Oh, don't like put a little bend in your elbow. That's not enough. Like you just put a little bend in your elbow with the elbow hyperextension. You're not going to feel your shoulders stabilize, which is important in a plank. You know, most people think of plank as like a core exercise. It is full body tension. It is connecting shoulder stability to core stability. So, yeah. All right. Well, wonderful. So I'm sure many listening are eager to get started. Where should they get started? I mean, I'm thinking thyroid strong should be a good starting point. But if there is anybody who is maybe not ready to think about doing it on their own, can you give like, I guess, a few tips prior to joining you in thyroid strong? Yeah. I mean, Thyroid Strong is six weeks. I have like shorter two-week programs. If someone's like, I don't know if I want to like fully invest that are under 50 bucks. And they're full recorded videos of workouts. And I do a lot of stuff on my Instagram, dremilykyber.com. Different workouts, different moves, form cues, you know, five moves I did today. So yeah, a lot on social media. Okay, wonderful. And then also your podcast, also called Thyroid Strong. Yeah. So yeah, they got the website, dremilykyber.com, your Instagram, and then again, the podcast. Would you say those are the main three resources or anywhere else where they could find you? Yeah, I'm on YouTube and I'm also All on right. TikTok. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And I do have, actually, I do have a private Facebook group for women who want to find out more. Because sometimes like asking... Yeah. Some like people, sometimes they don't 
necessarily want to like email or DM. So there's a Facebook group and then women are like, oh my God, I'm not alone. Here's like 4,000 other women that also have Hashimoto's and have like extreme fatigue or exercise intolerance when they work out. So there's a Facebook group, it's called Thyroid Strong. Okay. And that's not just for people who join Thyroid Strong. Anybody could join that? Yeah. I have a separate Facebook group for the people who join the program. (laughs) And then we get really nitty gritty. Like there's videos and form checks and keeping people accountable and making, creating accountability buddies for their workouts. And yeah, we talk a lot about protein and a lot about weights. So. All right. Wonderful. I'll make sure, of course, to include those links in the show notes. And yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Emily. I appreciate your time. And, you know, I always learn a lot. It seems like when having these conversations and today was no exception. I definitely learned a lot. So thanks again. Cool. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Save My Thyroid podcast. If you haven't done so already, make sure you hit subscribe to stay up to date on the latest thyroid health-related topics. And to get your free thyroid and immune health restoration action points checklist, visit SaveMyThyroidChecklist.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. That was an awesome interview with Dr. Emily. And I agree with a lot of what she says, including when she was talking about adrenals, like if you don't have healthy adrenals, you don't want to, I mean, you don't want to overtrain regardless, but when it comes to high intensity exercise, you really want to have healthy adrenals. So really want to wait until the adrenals are healthy and just do lighter exercise as far as cardio goes and then do resistance training, which will definitely talk more about, well, actually, I'm not going to get into too much into that. I'm going to talk about in between the exercise sets and getting enough protein. But I agree with her also about resistance training that a lot of people focus too much on cardio, which I was guilty of and a lot of people years ago guilty of. But now these days with the research coming out and just really understanding how important muscle mass is, not only when dealing with conditions such as hyperthyroidism and Hashimoto's, but just in general, as we get older, we tend to lose muscle mass. And so, yeah, it's great to focus on cardiovascular health because Heart disease is one of the big killers these days and has been for a long time, but definitely don't want to neglect muscle mass. And actually, I had a conversation with my wife and didn't realize that she goes to a place called Nine Rounds when she exercises. And for some reason, I thought they did not only cardio, but resistance exercise. And she says, not really. So she actually joined another gym in addition to that to get some resistance exercise, even though we do have some weights at home and she could actually do things at home too. But anyway, I was just telling her she wants to at least two to three times a week, four days a week would be even better. Anyway, optimize adrenals before really engaging in high intensity exercise. And then even when you incorporate high intensity exercise, you definitely don't want to overdo it. And then being productive in between exercise sets. So that's something I don't go on my phone in between exercise at least when I'm at the gym, if I'm working out at home, I can't say I never go on my phone in between sets, but I'm not one of those people that when, you know, I'm at the gym in between sets, I'm spending five minutes or even a minute or two on the phone. So yeah, I'm pretty good about that, but I can't say that I make it productive as far as doing deep breathing and stimulating my vagus nerve. So yeah, that was pretty cool. Maybe I'll do some loud singing next time I'm in the gym in between sets. (laughs) But seriously, it is a good idea. If you have 90 seconds, even a minute in between sets, why not just do some deep breathing? Now, 
again, I don't just hang around. I do some stretching in between sets. So it's not like I'm just chilling. Usually I'm doing some stretching, but hey, I could do some stretching and incorporate some mind-body medicine as well while waiting. And then getting enough protein. So I've been saying for a while that I recommend getting for people getting half their weight to 75% of their weight in grams. So for example, if someone weighs 120 pounds, they should get between 60 and 90. And then the more I talk with others and dive into the research, it probably should be higher. I don't know if it should be one gram per pound of body weight, or as Dr. Emily mentioned, just desired body weight, which I spoke about a little bit more. I think it was after the interview. I don't think it was on the interview. I asked her about this and she said within reason. So I gave an example of someone who's 150 pounds and they wanted to be 120. Yeah. I mean, that she was saying that's a pretty big difference, 30 pounds. So she didn't really give a straight answer with that. But either way, I would say if someone is, let's say again, 120, probably should get closer to the 90 grams if they can, especially if you're dealing with hyperthyroidism and you're losing a lot of muscle mass. Again, one could argue maybe people with hyperthyroidism especially should be getting one gram of protein for every pound of body weight. And obviously, a lot of people with Hashimoto's also have lower muscle mass as well. So yeah, just I think you want to be careful to make sure you're definitely not getting less than half your body weight in grams. So if someone's 120 and they're only getting like 30 grams of protein, that's not good. Or even again, 40 grams would be only like a third of their body weight. So yeah, definitely work on getting more protein if you're not consuming sufficient protein. And then she also mentioned proper form when exercising, which not going to get into detail here, but it's another reason to consider working with someone like a trainer initially just because a lot of people I'm sure work out and they just either watch videos or look what other people are doing, or maybe they get some one-on-one help just from a friend, but the friend's not really paying as much attention to the forum and that could lead to injury in the future. So I definitely agree with that. And yeah, I've not checked out her Thyroid Strong program, but it sounds like a really good program, especially if someone is kind of a newbie. But even if you've been working out for a while and you want to learn how to use kettlebells, <laughs> again, obviously there are other programs out there, but it's pretty cool that she focuses on people with thyroid conditions, more so Hashimoto's. I'm not sure. I don't see why she wouldn't let someone with hyperthyroidism in her program, but it's, I think there's a group component where she has like group calls and stuff. So I don't know how much support she'd be able to give as far as like, intensity and just being, but yeah, anyway, so just definitely if you have Hashimoto's, maybe you want to check it out. If you have hyperthyroidism, Graves disease, again, I think just hiring a trainer for like a session or two, or maybe more than that, maybe like four to six sessions might be a good idea just to make sure you get proper form and learn how to use all the exercises. Yeah. So just something to think about. And I think that's all I'll chat about here. So as usual, I hope you found this episode to be valuable and I look forward to catching you in the next episode. I want to let you know about a product called Hepatomune Supreme, which is a unique supplement that has a rare combination of N-acetylcysteine, also known as NAC, 
milk thistle and schisandra to support the liver. And it also has a few mushrooms that can help support the immune system, including cordyceps, which has both immune modulating and adaptogenic properties and is great for those with Graves' disease and Hashimoto's. To learn more about Hepatoimmune Supreme, visit savemythyroid.com forward slash liver support.